Dotnet Rocks episode 778, with guests Paul Betts and Tim Clem. Recorded live Friday, May 25th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. What's up, my friend? Not much, sir. You know, summertime. Making I'm, I'm, My experiment for this summer is uh, corned beef and pastrami. You have some sort of crazy sensor-controlled green egg barbecue thing. I've, Did you ever hook that up to a laptop and write code for it? I have spreadsheets. <laughs> I could show you the heat profile of a smoking brisket if you would like. That is so awesome. Yeah, 17 hours. Wow. It's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting set of data, actually. shows the curve of uh, smoking a piece of meat. Let's do a DNR TV on that soon. Really? You just want to eat it. That's all you want. <laughs> but I've gotten tired of smoking brisket, so now I'm pickling it. That's what corned beef is. Yeah, you could do both. You could smoke it and pickle it. Well, then it would be pastrami if you that's, pickle it and smoke it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's jump in to better know a framework. It's awesome. All right, my friend, what do you got? Our friend K. Scott Allen has a blog, Ode to Code. I love his blog. Dot com. He's got an awesome post from 2008 that's still relevant today called Stupid Link Tricks. Ha! <laughs> Great name. He did a presentation on Link, and uh, this is the code from his session. Okay. So he does stuff like uh, builds his own filtering operator to use in a query, uh, takes an expression like predicative T, and, uh, and, and filters a query. But just really cool stuff. You know, he's he's always thinking and he's always doing great stuff. I would just like to shout out to his blog in general, odecode.com. Odecode. Know it, learn it, love it. It's good stuff. Well, anyway, if you go to tinyurl.com slash stupid link, L-I-N-Q, you'll get to that post. Stupid link tricks. It's kind of fun and informative. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment out of show 744, which is a while back. That's Keith Brown's show, talking about RavenDB. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robbie Palace says, Hi, guys. Great show today. I've been trying to get myself up to speed on NoSQL recently, and RavenDB seems to me to be one with all the buzz at the moment. From what I've seen of it so far, it definitely has my attention. But the big thing that keeps holding me up is in deciding what kind of project it's best suited for. This was discussed in the show several times, and lots of other sources discuss it also. The thing is, the information seems to be somewhat fuzzy. I understand that they are great for read-heavy systems and poor for write-heavy systems, but aren't most systems on a scale between heavy read and write? Where do you draw the line and say that a particular system would struggle as a result of using something like RavenDB? Requirements change and market forces drive products in different directions. Should I be worried about choosing RavenDB because it's not flexible enough to cope with all eventualities? Or is it? Relational systems like SQL Server would seem to be a safer solution, one you're less likely to get blamed for if it turns out to be unsuitable. Mm. I suppose it's like any emerging technology. It's a risk to jump in at the deep end straight away. But if it's the right technology for and you get in early, you'll find yourself leading the curve 
for years to come. Cheers, Robbie Palace. Hey, Robbie, don't be a wimp. <laughs> Just dive in, man. What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, you know, really, I think the point, most of the time, virtually every app we build never pushes against the edges of the capabilities anyway. You know, we've got more horsepower than we know what to do with. The only reason that uh, we trust SQL Server so much is that the configuration is so simple, the defaults are good enough, and you never actually strain the limits. I've seen plenty of SQL Servers that, when actually push the limits, have lots of problems that can only be solved with large piles of money. Yeah. Uh, and RavenDB, while it may not have been stressed quite as far, the main thing is dealing with that 80% case. At 80% of the time, for 20% of the efforts, you're going to get the results you're going to need. And then you can discuss what you want to do next. You know, no system is going to do everything you want it to do. You just try and do what you need to do now and deal with the eventualities as it goes along. You can definitely overthink this. And uh, mm. as far as the best places to put RavenDB, I think anywhere you've got objects to store is a place where NoSQL can make some sense. It's just a question of what's more important to you, the simplicity of storing it that way or actually decomposing it into relational data. But that's really what that show is about. Uh, and for Robbie, a coveted .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. Absolutely. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we introduce our guests, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive training for developers online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and other industry experts. 12 to 15 new courses every month, free 10-day trial, a wide range of developer training courses including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Our guests are Paul Betts and Tim Clem. Paul has been working at GitHub for a year. Uh, before that, he worked at Microsoft. He worked on uh, Windows Vista SP2 and Windows 7 and uh, Office Labs in the Office Labs department doing prototypes for future versions of Office. Tim Clem started out as an EE, electrical engineer, building embedded systems using artificial neural nets and Got into assembly language and C programming and then into C Sharp and managed code. He's been at GitHub for a year and a half. Uh, he worked on the public API, the Ruby API, and, and the Mac app as well. And about a year ago, he kicked off GitHub for Windows and hasn't looked back. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having us. So, uh, Paul, you're on Skype. And Tim, just to identify the voices, Tim, you're on the phone. Yep. We tried you on Skype, but we had uh, this little problem called the internet in between us. Absolutely. Paul and I are technically in the same building, but we're not talking to each other. We're in rooms across the way. Isn't that funny <laughs> how it works out? Yeah, and they're bridging through Vancouver and New London to hear each other. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's just electrons, people. Yes. Just lots of them. So GitHub for Windows. Yeah. 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 It's a real thing. It's really, really happening. So we talk TFS a lot on this show, and we talk other source control and you know places to, to put code, but we don't talk GitHub all that much. Why don't you just tell us about the success that is GitHub first, and then we'll talk about Windows. Sure. Sure. So... GitHub is a little company that started um, officially incorporated in, in 2008, um, and Git has always been kind of the core center point of, of GitHub in a 
being at that time a very new system. Um, Git was built by uh, Linus um, to help do development on the Linux kernel. Um, and the, the original GitHub guys really saw an opportunity to bring um, the idea of distributed version control to a large number of people um, and to do it in a way that was much easier than participating in the mailing lists and sending patches on the Linux kernel. And so um, GitHub was born as just a way to easily share these distributed um, repositories and kind of keep up to date with open source projects that you cared about and closed source projects that you were working on on the side. Um, and so the real, I think, innovation of, of GitHub is that uh, as opposed to a central system where you're kind of at the mercy of some administrator to create a repository and allow you to create code, GitHub is really, and Git is really free form in that anybody can create a repo even without GitHub, and anybody on GitHub can take a copy, and we call it a fork, of someone else's repo. So if I care, you know, about Paul's new project, Akavash, I can fork it, and I can make a change in my copy of it, and later on I can say, hey, Paul, you know, I added this cool new feature. You should pull this back into yours. And so this new style of collaboration on software was kind of born out of this um, birth of uh, distributed version control and the advent of, of GitHub and this new collaboration model. But we really should stress that GitHub isn't just for open source projects. Correct. That's actually a great point. You can share projects with as many people as you like or as few as you like. Absolutely. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a whole system where you can kind of control who it is that is allowed to, to see your project. Um, but even within a large company, the model is still, um, you know, don't ask permission, ask forgiveness. Take a copy of some code, make a change, and then propose that to the group to see whether that is. And, and you aren't necessarily, you know, pushing that code into the main line directly. You're just pushing it to your fork. Mm. Um, but there's something very motivating about seeing real code as opposed to what you think might be a good idea. So so what you're saying is once it's on GitHub, everybody can see the, the code? Um, if it's a public open source project, uh, yes. If it's private, then, then you select a group of people that are allowed to see your code. Right. And I think that's the, the distinction I wanted to make. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. I guess GitHub as a, as a company, we're, we're a little bit of an anomaly in the valley in that um, we've never taken any outside funding. And so it was very much a project that was bootstrapped on nights and weekends and after hours and bars and coffee shops that um, eventually the founders were kind of slowly, one by one, able to wean themselves off their day job just through the revenue of GitHub.com. Um, and now we're kind of a fully functioning, profitable business with uh, 79 employees by last count, although mm-hmm. it's a little hard to keep track these days. And so there's GitHub, and it obviously is wildly successful. Um, GitHub for Windows brings that to .NET developers? Exactly. So um, Git for Windows has always been tough. Um, yeah. Git was always designed as, as kind of uh, Linux first and, and other people if it kind of works. And so, um, things that were very familiar to Linux developers, um, like SSH keys and, and things like this were not very familiar to Windows people at all. Um, mm. it was, wasn't really speaking their language. Yep. Um, and it made them do things like open bash shells or, you know, um, if you try to commit, you'd see VI as your commit editor, um, which, it's great for people who know VI, but for people who don't know VI, it's not good at all. Right. Um, 
So we really focused in GitHub for Windows to make an experience that Windows developers and .NET developers would really feel at home in. So, yeah, and we're talking command line stuff. You know, the Linux world, is it all exists in that command line. And, you know, I got exposed to that recently doing DNR TVs with John Paul Boudou, who uses Git and GitHub a lot. And, um, you know, it took, I had never done that before. So, but I remember the old days of using, uh, uh, what was the command line uh, version control thing that we had in Windows back in 95? Richard, I can't even remember the name of it now. SVN? Yeah, SVN. But yeah, so I so I'm the whole concept of using the command line is obviously familiar, but it does take a little bit of extra work. And especially setting up those keys and things. So so what does GitHub for Windows give us? Where do, does it integrate with Visual Studio? What is what's the story there? So, uh GitHub for Windows is a, a desktop application. It's a we wanted to create something that everyone on Windows could use. Um, uh, it works alongside Visual Studio, but uh, you don't have to have Visual Studio to use it. So you don't have to, you know, step one, get a Visual Studio license before you can participate in GitHub. Um, and so it's, it's a standalone desktop application. Um, and so it helps you to clone repositories from GitHub or create new repositories from files on your on your computer. Um, and make commits and view a history and and sync it to a remote server. Gotcha. Um, basically, all the all the things you're used to in version control, uh, you can do with our desktop application. So it's not really for .NET developers per se. It's for Windows users who are writing code on a Windows device, on a Windows machine, in any language. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But but I think we do we do a few a few things to specifically make .NET developers. Uh, happy. For example, um, so we also ship a, a really nice PowerShell-based command version of GitHub, and MS Build is in the path, so you can just type MS Build project and have it go. Right. So, uh, certain little things we try to make, we yeah. try to make the .NET experience a little better. Yeah, that's great. I think you know the other big thing it does is simply make it easy to get Git installed on your Windows computer. Yeah. Um, Previously, even that is a, an activity in patience and understanding a few dialogues that make you choose scary things about modifying your path and what kind of line ending munging do you want. Um, and so we tried to take a lot of that complexity out of installing Git to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then even just the, the raw defaults of Git on Windows are still pretty unfriendly to the average Windows developer. You get a, you know, a bash shell, which uh, doesn't make any sense right. for a lot of Windows people. And as Paul mentioned, you know, you make a commit message and you, you end up in VI and people get scared and they <laughs> kind of just close the terminal window because <laughs> none of the, none of the keys do what you expect them to do. And, yeah. um, it seems like a very silly system. So we really like overrode a bunch of those default things and made them Windows friendly. So if you know, we, you basically use, um, whatever your default editor is, which would be Notepad or if you've overridden Notepad, it could be, Notepad plus plus or Notepad two or VI in my case, um, and those things then just feel a little bit more at home in the Windows ecosystem and, and feel less like this foreign you know Linux tool set. Right. And you've built other clients too, right? There's also a a good GitHub client for the Mac. Absolutely. So and GitHub for Windows is is really kind of a sister app to GitHub for Mac. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the intention was very similar there. You know, uh, even though Mac is based on Unix and its underpinnings, a lot of Mac users, and especially when you get into the you know the, wor- the realm of people doing design and you know HTML and CSS. They're not comfortable pulling up a terminal window in order to participate on one of these GitHub projects. Sure. So you really felt that there had to be an easy way, you know, you get hired, GitHub hires a ton of designers, you know, almost half of our development team is, is specifically design focused. And there has to be a better way for those people to collaborate on these, on these projects and to participate with, um, GitHub.com. So that was, that was the target audience there as well, is, is once again to remove people from the agony of setting up SSH keys and understanding some very low-level concepts and let them really focus on being creative and collaborating, you know, participating on GitHub.com. Well, and I think you're also hitting this idea that it, that there's source code and there's source code. I mean, what can't you check into GitHub? Almost nothing these days. We don't do so well with really large binary files, but I have seen people um, release, you know, music albums and that kind of stuff on GitHub. Uh, bills, I've seen a bunch of people do, like, you know, the local legislation that's attempting to go through so you can see the diffs of it. Um, it was an interesting Wired article this year that was written on GitHub and published as an open source, and um, he got <laughs> an amazing amount of contributions, including, you know, translations into multiple other languages of the article and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I would say, you know, it's it's even moving beyond just code. It's, you know, collaboration in a larger sense. Yeah, it's text is text, right? It doesn't really matter yeah, yeah. what it is. And we even do image diffing on the website. If you go to GitHub.com and you know one of your designers has shrunk your logo by two pixels on the left, and it's you know two transparent pixels, we'll actually show you that difference in that commit, and you can kind of swipe between the two, and you can see highlighted that you know this portion of the image actually changed. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, one of the th- big things about GitHub is this the the whole chronology of an app or a project, whatever it may be, the changes that different people are making and the conversations that go around those changes. Absolutely. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com slash .NET decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I mean, folks treat GitHub more like it's a social media uh, engine than it is so much a source repository. Do you look at it that way? Um, I, you know, the biggest difference, I think, between GitHub and a lot of these other, what is popular social media now, is that GitHub is really still primarily about this 
it's content creation. The participators are actually building things as opposed to kind of sharing stuff that's happening in the world or stuff that's happening to them or there's a very like raw creative element happening. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's very different than, you know, commenting on pictures on Facebook. Right. Um, if you're commenting on code on GitHub, you're helping someone improve a product or right. a website or you're giving very critical feedback that ultimately ends up being then a part of the product later on. Hey, well, it's just, you know, reading these articles around Facebook, where it's, you know, people are updating their status by using a tool that generates a status from someplace else. Like it's, it's not mm-hmm. even your content in the first place and people are commenting on the content you didn't make. Exactly. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, the social aspects are really important because you can follow people. And if you care about a, a particular project, you can be aware of the activity and even who are the really smart developers out in the world. You know, I know um, you guys were talking about RavenDB before and a mm-hmm. lot of that development actually happens on GitHub. And I love going and just looking at the network graph of something like RavenDB and seeing, holy cow, like there are probably 40 active forks of RavenDB happening right now where people are, you know, adding a new feature or fixing a bug that's very specific to their particular use case or locale. And so there's this really interesting um, creative social interaction that's happening that's that's actually very productive. It's it's life-bringing. Although, don't you find there's a point at which the, the amount of forking going on becomes its own problem? Like, how do you get it back to the trunk? Um, Git is really good at that. Uh, I think that's one of the, like, main benefits of the distributed system is that it's amazingly good at letting you create a large number of branches and forks and then managing differences between them and pulling in changes that you care about to different forks. Mm -hmm. Most projects sort of solidify on like a canonical version. Um, And many times that's something like, you know, RavenDB, RavenDB. But if Allende was to sort of give up that project and say he didn't want to work it on it anymore, um, Another fork might start living on as the most, you know, the most up-to-date and the most canonical version. And there are many cases on GitHub where, you know, a, a fork eventually ends up then becoming the new canonical version because right. it's where the most attention is, is being received. Where people are putting their energy into and, and ultimately merging things is. I mean, I like your, your general principle model here of this idea of anybody can create a fork. But if you want it to go back to the canonical model, check in early and often and make a good contribution so that people are willing to put the energy to get it there. Yep, absolutely. The longer you're off in the wilderness, the less likely you are to come back. And that's, you know, I think part of participating in the world of open source, and in many ways this actually applies to people who are doing closed source development as well, because you're, you know, you're in a large company, let's say Microsoft or Apple, there's a good chance that someone in a different division is actually solving the same sort of build configuration problems you're having, and you've written a bunch of scripts. Right. Those are probably useful outside of your small world. And if you can use a system like GitHub where someone else can say, hey, these guys are doing the exact same things with continuous integration as we are, like, let's start from their thing and fork it. And maybe we have some small tweaks because we're doing some slightly different things, and we got some Java in our project as well as .NET code. But now you're kind of, you're making the best use of everybody's time. Mm-hmm. You've given people the capability of reusing something that they otherwise would have written from scratch. 
and it and it looks to me, I mean, the business model of GitHub is the private repository, right? I mean, the, all the open source stuff is free, but if you want your own repositories, you pay monthly for that. Absolutely. So that's you know we we charge a monthly fee, um, and it's based on private repositories, and then we offer organizational accounts, which is you know for larger companies and groups of people who want to have you know GitHub itself is an is an org on on GitHub.com, and that's where we control teams of people and the repositories that they have access to. Um, and so if your organization wants private repos, that costs money as well. Sure. We also sell an installable version of GitHub. So if you're a, a large company in the defense industry or a bank and you just absolutely can't have code out on the public internet, um, we'll actually let you install GitHub behind your firewall and in your enterprise. Um, so that's we make money off of doing that as right. well. That's that's GitHub Enterprises. The standalone that's GitHub Enterprise. Yep. All right. So tell me more about the legislation uh, that was tracked on GitHub. So there's a couple of different people that have have been doing this. Um, I think I saw even another one pop up this this morning. Um, and the basic premise is that it, it's you know it's not official. No one in the government is actually doing this yet. But um, individual citizens have basically gone and taken the current legislator for their state, and the one I'm looking at today is actually the U.S. government, it's all the, you know, bills, um, and they put it in GitHub, and then as things change, they make new commits. And so you can go and see how is, how are our laws changing over time, and the kind of logical conclusion you could bring would be, you know, what if congressmen actually submitted pull requests? And so you can very clearly see, like, this, law is changing things in this way, and people could have a discussion around that and decide. And as you discuss and the proposed change also changes, that then becomes reflected. And and it's much more, you know, it's like law as code. Um, It's just another form of text, but there's some very powerful thoughts on there. Well, you know what, though? Having spent some time with senators recently, I can tell you that they can barely use their iPhones. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, My guess is, what, do you think a lot of that stuff is being done in, you know, Microsoft Word and, uh, who knows, with redlining? Yeah. Um, You know, the other funny thing I see, uh, I I always go and, you know, Tom Preston Werner, one of the founders here, barbecues at his house, and he's got all of his recipes on GitHub. And as he cooks and as he, you know, finds something he wants to tweak with a recipe, he actually, you know, changes that text file and makes another commit. So he's got this kind of you know, history of food he likes to make and the various permutations on it. But also a great way to share it when somebody says, oh, I love this recipe, it's easy to share it with them. Absolutely. And not only share it, but then they can come back and be like, oh, you know, I live in, you know, at the high altitude, you know, I live in Colorado and I had to do, you know, add a little bit of extra flour and bake it at this temperature instead. And so you can, you know, then you get maybe the high altitude fork of, of the recipe. See, this is strange. You're almost describing SharePoint. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say the S word. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's more technical and it's not a, it's not the slick user interface, of course, but, uh, you know, document management. Well, and to be honest, I think of GitHub as, as, you know, time goes on is GitHub is, is, uh, collaboration for technical work. And so where technical work is initially code, right? But maybe you could think about what if I could collaborate on an album 
right? Yeah. With, with other people or like a, a Photoshop document or a, or a film, right? Um, things that these programs like, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator and, and After Effects are not easy to use. There are a lot of technical work. Um, and, and there's a lot of detail and, but, but a lot of those tools associated with them don't allow to do a lot of versioning and, and interesting history and things that us programmers take for granted. Well, now, um, now that you made me think about that, because I do film and audio and all that stuff, is the, the data files we're talking about are much bigger, especially with video. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm copying a, a, a guy I did a video for wanted a copy of all the raw files, so he dropped off his hard drive, and it's not big enough. Like, he needs a – I have 175 gigs of data just for this one video. You know, is that the kind of thing that we can push up to GitHub? Uh, not at the moment. I mean, there's definitely some technical challenges, but I think it's an area that's really interesting. It is a, definitely an area that's interesting. I was just talking last night uh, after band rehearsal with um, a couple of guys in this band, and I can't remember who they are, but they they started this band. One was on the West Coast, one was on the East Coast, and they did an entire album by sending DVDs of audio files through the mail, through the U.S. Yep. mail. And they did an entire album that way, and it was awesome. I, I, is that the Postal Service? Is it Ben Gibbard yeah. and Ben Tell? Yeah, exactly, the yep. Postal Service, yeah. And, and yeah. in some cases, and we've had this discussion before, Richard, some files are in groups of files are so big that it's actually faster to send them by FedEx than it would be to send them through you know standard business internet connections. Yeah. Actually, there's a there's a funny story from the the history of of GitHub here um, that involves sending things sneakernet. Um, we started out hosting when when the company was very small and and it was in its early stages, actually at Engine Yard, which is a kind of a Rails hosting shop. Um, they're based in San Francisco here too. And at a certain point, things were going so fast that we actually um, made a move over to Rackspace and actually went off of virtualized um, systems and onto bare metal. So GitHub right now, by and large, most things run on, on bare metal. We don't do a lot of virtualization. Um, and as part of that process, we had to get our database from California to Virginia, which is where you know the Rackspace data center is that, that we're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what they had to do was actually, you know, there's a couple tables in there that are just, Massive. If you can, you can, I mean, I can't even tell you the billions of records that are in there now. But at that yeah. time, it was it, it was pretty significant. And so they actually ended up um, putting a hard drive and in, in a suitcase and sending someone on an airplane um, to Virginia because they did the math and and you know they had started tra- transferring the data, kind of the newest, most accessed information early, and then they did the math about how long it was going to take and. It made more sense to get in an airplane than it did to to wait for that to go all the way over there. Isn't that there crazy? Well, you know, the you got me thinking now, though, that uh, it, you know, if you were going to set up a system where you wanted to allow people to collaborate on large, you know, large amounts of data, um, you could use GitHub for metadata, and the metadata could simply be links to uh, large files that are hosted elsewhere on some system that can handle that, you know, that amount of data. But uh, yep. you're still version controlled because the metadata is what's important. That's got the links and that's got the information about when they changed and what the changes are. It's it's probably a little technical for this conversation, but but Git itself actually has those 
capabilities of basically using using a different data store for certain things in yeah. in the repository. So we don't we don't really leverage it on GitHub.com, but it, it certainly is there. Yeah, and uh, and I imagine that there's um, there's ways to programmatically access Git and GitHub. You said you worked on the uh, API, the core API. So. Uh, our public API, um, basically anything you can do through the web interface on GitHub, yeah. you can also do through an API. Right. Um, and even including some functionality that you you can't do in the web interface. So we offer all the way down to like low level plumbing Git access. So if you had a repository, you know, you could literally write a website or a client app that didn't use Git. It just used our API and we did the Git operations for you on the server. Awesome. Nice. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Must be that happy time again. <laughs> oh, it's that happy, happy, happy time. We're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection, a $2,000 value, $7,000 worth of software from Telerik, everything that they do for Matt Morgan today. Matt, Ooh, congratulations. congratulations Matt. Golf clap for you, sir. Yep, from the UK. And uh, if you're listening, great. Um, and if you're not, we'll you're contact not. you in other ways. Yeah, if you're not, that's too bad, I guess. Yeah. But uh, I don't think there's a, a, a limit on the. I don't think there's an expiration date. So if you get in touch with us and, and respond to the email we sent you, you'll, we'll get it to you. And what we're talking about is the uh, .NET Rocks fan club. If you want to join, just go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big link in the upper right-hand corner that says Get Free Stuff. And uh, every show, we give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection once a month. We give away a Grape City Power Suite, which is their collection of tools and utilities, another great sponsor of .NET Rocks. And every year in December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of hand-picked technology from Richard and myself. So you want to do that. Well, now, now you really got me um, thinking about you know, all this stuff is academic until you actually have a use for it. So, you know, that's why you have people in the audience going, yeah, you know, and then somebody says, oh, I could do that. And then, and then while you're talking, you know, the, the synapses are firing. That's what's going on in my brain right now, because um, collaborating over the Internet on album projects is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. In fact, I have a project in the works that I would like to do, but it's... It's difficult because if all you have is just an upload drop, you know, then now you've got to coordinate all that with email and you've got to have people who are technical enough to say what I just uploaded, what it refers to. And there's like a lot of meta information that goes along with it. If you can automate all that in a website, it certainly uh, makes it all possible. It'd be very cool. Yeah. Guys, a couple of times you've mentioned about polls and so forth. Uh, maybe we need to explain this in more detail for folks who haven't spent any time on GitHub. How do I know when somebody submits something to my project or, uh, you know, we, we're doing that kind of integration? Sure. So um, how you do it is that um, if you see a project and you're interested in contributing, um, one of the first things you do is create what's called a fork. And so uh, by default, if you look at somebody else's project, obviously you can't commit directly to it, right? Because you're just changing somebody else's project. Um, but what Git lets you do that other uh, hosting solutions, and you're kind of not used to being able to do it, is to create a copy of it that you can write to. It's called your fork. Um, and so you fork a project on github.com. And and then now you have a version that you can write to that is an identical copy of theirs, right? Um, 
And so once you've got your copy, you can, you can copy it to your, you can check it out on your local machine. You can start, uh, you know, making changes and then, um, making commits. Um, and then once you're ready, you push that up. Uh, and we have a way, um, at GitHub to tell somebody, Hey, I've got something new that's really cool. Um, and we call this a pull request. Um, and so every time you create a branch in Git and then publish that branch, so push it to github.com. We'll have mm-hmm. a little on the website. We'll have a little notification that says like you just pushed a new branch. And so really what you should do is every time you want to create a feature, um, or any sort of thing you want to give to somebody else, create a branch. Branches are really cheap in Git and, and really easy to create and throw away if you don't, if you don't end up using them. Um, so you initially create a branch like, um, you know, my cool feature, um, make some commits and then you'll, you'll push it to github.com and you'll see this button that says pull request. And so what you're saying is, I want to take my branch in my version of the code and then send it to you, right? So you're sending it back to the original author. And so when you do that, when you send that pull request, you can also send you send um, a title and description, and that description is marked down so you can make it really nicely formatted. And so, so basically, it becomes the way to do code review, right? So you send a description of what you're doing. Um, you know, why you want to do this, why you think this feature is interesting. And then in line, you see the code. And so what's really cool about this is that if they, if they find some problems with your code, um, you can keep committing. And so this conversation will go back and forth. So you'll, you'll make a few commits. He'll say, Oh, I need you to change this other, you know, a few lines here. And then you'll keep making some more commits. You don't have to delete it and recreate it. Mm-hmm. And so that's really, uh, unique and really, um, powerful because it becomes a conversation on both the feature like why should why should we do this from like a kind of philosophical point as well as a conversation on the actual code and so lines of code that are changed show up if you if you reference bugs like issues in the issue tracker they'll show up linkedin basically anything that you mention you'll get a link to it and so it becomes this like central repository to to talk about this one feature and I mean, part of this is actually the discussion angle on it, that when that comes in, uh, you, you now have a mechanism for saying, okay, well, I've looked this over and I'm, I'm not going to integrate it or, you know, I have a concern with these changes and you can, you sort of get a chronology of that conversation as well. Exactly. And it's tied to the code. It's not, it's not kind of when you, when you sent patches over email or tried to do it some other way, you had the email in one place. The conversation in one place and the code in a different place. Yeah. And so with GitHub, you really have it. You're seeing both at the same time in this really unified, a really easy to understand view. Mm-hmm. And it's a history, right? So you can go back over time and see the closed pull requests and read like, why did they make this decision? Like, why did they, you know, what did they do to add this feature? And so it's really as you create pull requests, like, so in, if you're in an organization, you can actually create pull requests on the same repository, right? So. So uh, I can create a branch and then pull request to the main branch, um, even without creating a fork. And so the idea is that, that as, as you develop, you see this history of all the features you added and a lot of documentation. So really you get kind of like your, your developer docs for free if you do mm-hmm. it this way. And it's really, it's a really a cool way to get software done that is really useful. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. 
and it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package. So You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Looking at GitHub as a whole, uh, what's the sort of uh, uh, DNA of it? Is it mostly uh, uh, Java projects or web projects? What's what's sort of the dominant species out there? So initially, GitHub really became popular in the Ruby crowd, and so mm -hmm. Ruby and Rails, um, and so a lot of a lot of Rails projects are up there. Um, a lot of the the kind of up and coming languages like uh, Clojure or Node.js. Mm -hmm. Um, they store a lot of their stuff on GitHub. Um, and we see a lot of, um, all kinds of different things. There's C projects and, you know, Perl projects and Java projects. Um, we see a lot of .NET projects as well. Um, and we're really excited that now, you know, the, the Mac people in the command line kind of oriented people could always use GitHub really easily. And the Windows people were kind of frustrated because they really liked GitHub, but Git was kind of abusive to them. Mm -hmm. um and so so with github for windows now it's way easier to just use to to participate too much simpler to be involved but there are great projects that developers in the windows space have been using forever like modernizer mm -hmm. that that live in github yep if, if you go to github.com slash languages you can take a little peek into you know the top languages on on github um, and JavaScript and Ruby are up at the top there, and then there's a there's a complete list as well. Um, and then on any project on GitHub, we actually provide a language breakdown as well. So you mm -hmm. can kind of, you know, if you end up on RavenDB or something like that, you can look and see. Oh, you know, it's mostly mostly C sharp. There's a little bit of PowerShell. Um, so you can kind of get a feel for what is the technology behind this particular project. So, well, how, what do you guys think in, in terms of? Uh open source of .NET? Because it'd be obviously the, the sort of public DNA of, of GitHub are these open source projects. Are, are there much happening in the .NET space for that? I'm really excited about open source and .NET. I think the really interesting thing on .NET for open source is NuGet, right? When NuGet was released, um, it made consuming open source really straightforward and easy to do before it was kind of, you know, you downloaded some shady looking zip file, and, uh, you added the DLL and, and tweak some, you had a, if it was a web project, you had to change all these web config settings and, and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. Um, but NuGet made that so easy. Um, and so NuGet was the piece to consume open source, right? It's so straightforward. Um, the thing that I'm really excited about and the thing that, that kind of drew me to GitHub is that now we have a way to consume open source. Let's make it an easy way to take that project and add stuff to it, right? So like I'm using, some uh, NuGet package, and why can't I just edit it and then send back my change? I think that's really cool, and I think that's something that we at GitHub are really interested in. Well, and, it, and I mean, NuGet was open source, but also driven by a bunch of Microsoft employees, one of which I believe is working with you guys now. Hmm. Yep, indeed. That would be Phil Hack. The so. Phil Hack. The Hackster. The Phil Hack. Yeah. Sir Hack. One and only. <laughs> 
Well, I, you know, I think ultimately open source is actually a rather disruptive technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it really changes the way we approach software development as an industry. Um, and it has some really interesting consequences for the people who are spending some time contributing to open source, um, either because that's something they do on the side or because their day job relies on open source and so they contribute to those projects as part of improving the other products that they are uh, building. Um, and there, there ends up becoming this very, you know, public record of not only how do you write code, but how do you talk about it? Mm-hmm. Um, what are you like when you submit a pull request? Are you a jerk? Are you very friendly and accommodating over the kind of changes that you're willing to make? Do you have strong opinions and do you stand up for what they are? And so you start to get, these things are hard to fake and these things are very hard to know about people otherwise. And so open source gives us this great ability to kind of see what people are interested in and see the kind of code that they're writing and see the the interesting things that they're doing. And it allows this pollination between languages and platforms and frameworks that otherwise wouldn't necessarily happen because people are locked in their own small communities. And so you get on there and you say, oh man, like Ruby has this great stuff going on. How are they doing this? Maybe we should have something similar like this in .NET and even vice versa. So, you know, AFB.MVC in many ways came out of Rails and Rails certainly wasn't the first web MVC framework, but it was on GitHub and it was popular and you could see how the code was being developed. Um, and then, you know, vice versa for things like Link. Uh, you know, Link doesn't really exist in in Ruby, but Arial is this kind of new way of querying you know, databases and active model in Rails 3. And so there starts to be people start pulling ideas from places that they wouldn't have otherwise had an excuse to come in contact with. The challenge for us at GitHub, if you've ever seen like a normal person edit or like look at Wikipedia, right? Mm-hmm. And so they read it, they read it, and, and then you walk up behind him and say like, you know, oh, hold on, let me just fix that. It's a typo. And you hit the edit button and they like freak out because they're like, you, you you just edited Wikipedia? Like, they know that you can edit Wikipedia, but they don't. They treat it like you can't. Right. And so we want to give developers in the .NET community kind of, like, make them not blind to the edit button anymore. Mm. Um, so it's like, if you see something in an open source project that you don't like, or that is a bug, or that uh, you think should be work a different way, just change it. Um, and a lot of people just kind of assume that it's this, uh, you know, opaque thing that they could never they can't edit right so um that's what we're really excited about is is opening people's eyes to the edit button and just not being afraid of it now i don't know if we want to talk about this or not but can we talk about torvald's rant about github sure <laughs> sure uh because it was uh let's face it fairly spectacular <laughs> oh yeah and and the recursion is lovely i mean the guy behind git well that yeah Let's tell the story before we comment on it. Yeah, tell, yeah. T- tell the story before we get into it. So the guy behind Git yep. uh, won't accept pull requests from GitHub. And he writes a posting, I guess. Somebody sent off this pull request, and he just posted this thing about why I won't accept uh, uh, pull requests from GitHub. And, well, then the story goes. He admittedly is not only firmly opinionated, he has very specific ways about the way he wants to do things. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and 
you could see both sides of this. It's He's not real nice about it, but God knows how many pull requests the guy gets. I feel for him. So he has another project on GitHub that's uh, uh, like a like a hobby side project that he uses to track his um, his uh, he's into diving like uh, mm-hmm. like uh, you know snorkeling kind of deal yeah um, and he uses a program to track that and get information off his dive computer and so he takes pull requests for that but the Linux kernel is a very special place you know it's a very it's very disciplined because it's a very complicated project there's a very specific way that it operates. Um, and with good reason, because, uh, you know, a kernel operating system, the kernel is a very complicated piece of software and, and changes that seem reasonable can have, you know, very unexpected consequences, especially sure. when you think of devices and stuff like that. Um, and so really, I think that we could, we shouldn't be the place for that because it's a very specific use case. Um, and so, so he um, intentionally wants it to work, the, you know, a certain way with mailing lists and stuff like that. Yeah. So let me give you my take on that, because I think um, in many ways, it's actually a, a good thing that it's a, it's a compliment to us that he doesn't want to use it on the Linux project. And part of that is GitHub has lowered the barrier so far for someone to contribute, which is the intention the whole purpose of the website was the whole reason for its existence. Right. The lower that barrier of being able to collaborate and contribute, that all of a sudden people can contribute to the Linux kernel who maybe don't have the business doing that or haven't spent the time to really catch up on the history about why things are the way they are. Right. And as someone, as a maintainer of a project that large, have to be re-explaining now, not only in your traditional forum of mailing lists, you know, get patches, etc., but now in a whole secondary interface where people are expecting you to spend valuable time reviewing something that they haven't educated themselves enough in order to put it in, you know, I can understand the, the frustration there. The, the barrier of entry, he wants it to be a little bit higher than it is for our pull request. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, it is specific to his project. One would argue, how many projects are in this category? Not, not too many. <laughs> exactly. The thing I like about him, though, is that you know, even though he's he's kind of harsh to read, um, and if you if you've ever been on the Linux kernel mailing list, you'll see some equally harsh uh, replies. Um, all of the things that he complained about were very specific and very yeah. actionable. It wasn't yes. just some guy coming on and saying like, "This sucks." Right? Yeah. He was like, this sucks because it should be this way and it'd be way more usable if, if these, uh, he's very particular about mail, right? Because yeah. he does mm-hmm. everything through his mail client. Um, he is very, uh, you know, this would be way better if you showed a proper diff stat in the diff and if you did all these other things. And so these were things that we could just read through and kind of, uh, you know, get over the, get over the harsh wording and say like, we should fix this, this and this and this. And so they're really good suggestions. Um, you know, this guy's super busy, right? You know, the fact that he takes time out of his day to write these, write these really specific, detailed write-ups, uh, yeah. means that he, you know, there must be something good about it, right? You don't, if something is universally bad, you just don't say anything about it, right? Right. So, That's and, true, e- huh? and even when you talk about that particular pull request, Linus stayed engaged in that conversation for hours. Mm. You know, there's uh, must be a, a, of the hundred or fifty or so things that came across that pull request. There's a dozen from him. 
He, yep. This was not an uh, off-the-cuff, I'm not doing this kind of comment. This was extremely thought out. Yep. And so, I, you know, I don't know if Linus has noticed, but we um, we have actually tweaked some of the emails that we send out for pull requests that include some better information and, and what he was looking for. Um, I think, you know, the website will never be exactly the way that he wants to manage a project. Yeah. Um, but there were some really, as Paul said, some really valuable specific things in there. And we actually went through and said, yeah, we, you know, there's not enough information in these emails to give you a really good feel as to why you should care. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, we added basically hyperlinks to the patch for, for the pull request in the email so that you could immediately get the raw text, you know, the same thing you would get on a mailing list, um, without even having to go over to really to our website. Yeah. Well, guys, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, it's been a been a good hour. It's just flown by. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, Paul and Tim. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. GitHub for Windows is destined for great things, I'm sure. Cool. So yeah, check it out at uh, at windows.github.com is the is the website to download the app and uh, let us know what you think. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember. Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.